Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Alex Wellerstein, author of the book, Restricted Data, The History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. Alex, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. (laughs) I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, uh, I'm a historian of science, and um, I'm, I'm sure that listeners of this podcast have probably heard of the history of science, but we're a relatively small subfield in the field of history. And what I like about being a historian of science, what I've always liked, I've been a historian of science essentially since I learned that there was such a thing to do um, when I was an undergraduate, is that it's not just about looking at history or you know, names and, and events and things like that. But it's it's about sort of what are the conditions for knowledge? What is what makes knowledge work? And what is what makes technology work as well? So anyway, those are the kinds of things I'm obsessed with. And that's the kind of thing I bring to any kind of history I do. It's a fascinating approach to it. And it's something that is definitely evident throughout your book. What led you to choose nuclear secrecy, though, as a topic? Well, when I was uh, an undergraduate, and this was some years back uh, at University of California, Berkeley, I was working for a professor who was interested in nuclear history. This is uh, Professor Catherine Carson, who works on the German atomic energy questions. And uh, I was on a research project and, you know, it was <laughs> this was sort of pre- smartphones and it, we had the internet, but, but it wasn't quite as big as, as it became. Um, and to do research, you would go to the library, old-fashioned approach, right? And, <laughs> and, um, and uh, I would go in and find the Dewey Decimal of a book that seemed relevant. And then I would spend a lot of time looking at all the books around it. This was sort of my my research by serendipity. And one of the books I found uh, while I was doing this project was a book by a guy named uh, Chuck Hansen called U.S. Nuclear Weapons, The Secret History. And already that's a sort of an exciting name. And it's not that interesting a book. It's full of pictures and a lot of very dense technical text. Um, And that stuff was of some interest. But what was really amazing, uh, he has these diagrams in the book that are just, I'd never seen anything like them. They're drawings of the atomic bombs from World War II, Little Boy and Fat Man. And the Fat Man one in particular, this is the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, it's not just a drawing of, of, of what it looked like. It, it's like an exploded isometric view like an engineer might do, right? Where every little screw and every little switch and every little part is sort of static and it's and in space. And it's, it's, it's like a, a drawing of a perfect mastery, right? It's like he's taken it apart with his mind and projected all the pieces apart, you know? And I remember... A, being just very impressed with this because I'd never seen anything like this. I'd seen diagrams of how these bombs are supposed to work, and I've seen photographs of the bomb casings, but nothing that showed this sort of level of, uh, of, of detail in it. And I 
remember sitting there thinking, I wonder how much of this is true. Is, is this real? Does he really know this much about this bomb? Because this is some of this is information that is presumably still classified today. Certainly at some point was classified. Um, you know, the Rosenbergs went to the electric chair for less information than this. And, uh, and I remember thinking it would be really interesting to go through something like this and think both when did any aspect of this become something that was knowable to those of us without security clearances? And, uh, uh, and how did he put something like this together? And this started me on a path that when I was in graduate school, I pursued and I actually basically wrote that paper of how you get enough information in the public domain to assemble something like this. I found the artist and interviewed him about what kinds of techniques he used to really make it look, as he put it, like it advertised accuracy. Um, and uh, in the process, I started thinking, why wow, the secrecy thing is really interesting. Uh, the, the, obviously, secrecy is part of the nuclear story, and any take on the development of nuclear weapons has got to have secrecy in it. But I had never seen anything that was really a history of the secrecy. You know, how did that start? How did that work? When did it change? When did did it wax and wane? How did how did this go about? How did the system? even get developed? Did it just pop into full existence or was it gradual or in phases? And so this ended up, you know, once I had that, that question in my mind and, uh, it became an obvious project to work on and I've been working on it for, you know, many, many years, over 15 years at this point. One of the first revelations uh, in your book for me was that the history of nuclear secrecy predates even the history of building the atomic bomb. I, I was wondering if you could talk about how you, the history of nuclear secrecy begins with this process of self-censorship in the 1930s and, and, and the forces that are driving it, because I found it very fascinating how these forces seem to reoccur throughout your book. Sure. So before anybody was working on an atomic bomb, there were scientists who were thinking about the possibility of an atomic bomb, one of which in particular is um, rather prominent and in the literature on this and, and prominent for his role in the secrecy, a Hungarian named Leo Zillard. And he had been thinking about the possibility of using nuclear chain reactions for industry and for weapons purposes since about 1933, so well before World War II and well before the discovery of nuclear fission. Um, he couldn't make it work because you need a reaction that he didn't know existed to make such a thing operate. But once nuclear fission was discovered, nuclear fission is when you split uh, a heavy atom like uranium uh, and, and it releases energy and some neutrons. Um, once he saw a sort of candidate reaction, his mind sort of almost instantly went in place, my God, atomic bombs are possible now. And um, for him, the very first thought this led to after realizing they were possible was that he didn't want the Germans to know about it. By the time fission is discovered, it's early 1939 when Zillard hears about this, um, that World War II has not really yet begun, but it is very clearly in motion. Zillard himself is a refugee from Europe. He had fled uh, Germany not that long after Hitler took power. Uh, he sort of was able to read the tea leaves and get out of there pretty soon. He was of Jewish background. Um, and so he was really motivated to not let um, the Nazis have nuclear weapons. And so it's that the origins of the secrecy is a fear, a fear that this knowledge could be used to nefarious aims. And so he initially, um, the way he approaches this is to go to the few scientists he knows who works on this topic, who work on nuclear fission, and who seem clever enough to be thinking about chain reactions, and to say, why don't we not publish more on this? The, the fact of nuclear fission is already out there. That was discovered by Germans. Um, and so you're not going to keep that from anybody, but maybe they won't realize that you could make a chain reaction with this. And then they won't realize that you could make a bomb with this. And so he goes to Americans, he goes to other refugees who are in America, like Enrico Fermi and Edward Teller. Um, he goes to uh, British physicists he knows. He goes to Niels Bohr in Denmark. He does this through telegrams, of course. Um, and he gets them all on board, which is really remarkable because the atomic bomb is so far away from completion 
question at this point. Most of the physicists are pretty skeptical that you could actually build an atomic bomb. It, it's one thing to make this experiment and to say, yes, we can split uranium atoms. It's another thing to say, let's scale up this literally tabletop technology to an entirely new industry and use that to make weapons. That's, that's not very likely to occur in a short amount of time. It doesn't usually. Um, uh, but he manages the, the fear of the Germans is great enough, especially with other refugees that they're willing to do it. And, uh, and, and so this is the sort of first form of secrecy, a self-censorship. Uh, it, it falls apart uh, because the French aren't willing to sign on. The Frédéric Joliot Curie in Paris are also working on this topic. They are not really interested in secrecy. They don't think that it will work. They sort of suspect that the other scientists are just trying to get the credit for it. And they have some reason for suspecting this. It's not really the other scientist's fault. Uh, and they eventually publish on this and then pretty much everybody published on it. So it's both the origins of it and a spectacular failure in its own right, though it does lay the groundwork for a lot of the secrecy that's going to be coming later. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that what was ultimately missing was lack of an enforcement mechanism. The question is, what if somebody does try to publish? What do you do about that? And as you point out, what you had was, you know, to yeah, I, I, this might be a sexist term today, but you had basically a gentleman's agreement that they weren't going to do it, and all it takes is one person to break that, and then all of a sudden you're you're, you're back to square one. So, at what point does do you start to you know how how does the introduction of the government's participation in the process changed this, and, and how does the government approaching this question of security? So, after the whole thing falls apart, um, Zillard is obviously not very happy about this, but he starts to really think that the government, ought, the United States government, ought to be getting involved. Um, and it's a long, kind of complicated thought process. Initially, he's trying to make sure that the Queen of Belgium won't give the Germans uranium because the Belgians have a lot of uranium from the Belgian Congo. Um, and he eventually decides, no, what we need to do is actually just write a letter to Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt. And the person he gets to help him with this is, of course, um, his buddy, Albert Einstein, who, unlike Zillard, is a very famous scientist. And so um, this begins this long sort of journey towards an atomic bomb, though initially it's very modest. What, what, what Roosevelt approves in late 1939 is a very small committee, and it's just meant to sort of coordinate government interests and co coordinate the research and some very modest amounts of funding uh, towards seeing whether nuclear weapons are something that ought to be worried about. This is not a bomb production project. It's a are bombs a thing project. And this uh, goes along for um, a couple of uh, years. And as it goes along, um, the government starts to get more and more and more invested in this work and research. And the more the government is invested in it, uh, the more they start having uh, uh, secrecy become imposed on it. And initially, while there was some secrecy, compared to what happens later, it's, it's, it's relatively um, mild in many ways. I mean, they call this initial organization the Uranium Committee, which is already a sign that it's not that secret, right? If you're writing uranium on the name of your committee, then you know how you're, you're pretty much letting the world know what it is you're doing if they even find out it exists. But um, once it starts to get sort of assimilated into this growing infrastructure of wartime defensive scientific research, so this is run by uh, Vinnie Bush, uh, who who gets a series of organizations from Roosevelt to coordinate scientific work during the war, um, most notably the Office for Scientific Development and Research, um, the OSRD, excuse me, Scientific Research, OSRD, Office of Scientific Research and Development. Research and Development. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, then you start having this work being put into an increasingly expanding bureaucracy of things. And this means uh, this means more standardization. So you want to know who is approved to talk about this. Zillard would talk to anybody who he trusted on this, but that isn't how it works if you're doing secret government research. These people have to have security clearances. They have to have background checks. They have to be um, vetted by the army, the Navy, the FBI, somebody. Um, some of these people who he's talking with are, including himself, frankly, are what they call um, enemy aliens, which is to say they are people from countries that are currently 
uh, occupied by the Nazis or run by the Nazis. So German refugees, Italian refugees, Hungarian refugees. Now, all these people are anti-Nazi. That's why they left. But uh, in in the eyes of the sort of World War II, early World War II censors, that isn't necessarily adequate enough. They're very suspicious of Enrico Fermi because he's Italian, even though um, he 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 fled. Um, and so you start getting um, more uh, routine procedures and regulations. Um, they start treating it more like um, you know government work. And and so what starts is self censorship. Uh, it becomes what I call civilian censorship, which is to say it's being administered by other scientists um, and it's being, um, you know, with some help from the military, but the military are not really running the show at this point. And it's it's no longer Wait, voluntary at this point. You, you describe how how, how uh, Blessy Groves goes about uh, instituting a, a, a secrecy regime. And it, it, the tension that you describe is really interesting because his approach to it is, in some respects, very antithetical to the way that scientists like to operate. They think of collaboration. They think of conversation. You have uh, Oppenheimer setting up the colloquial at, at, at uh, Los Alamos. And Groves is more about putting up barriers and, and, and establishing this notion, you need to know and only what you need to know, and you shouldn't know anything beyond that. I, I was especially fascinated about how you describe when the Smith report comes out at the end of the war, how these scientists are reading it to figure out what everyone else was doing in the same project they were all working on. <laughs> yeah. So the military takes over in 1942. That's when it becomes the Manhattan Project. And again, you can see even the secrecy in the name. It goes from Uranium Committee to the S1 Committee, which is, does not tell you what it is, and to the Manhattan Project, which doesn't tell you anything that much and is a little bit of misdirection. It was originally did start in New York City, but it was quickly other places. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the head of the project is in the military is, and head of project overall is general Leslie Groves and Groves is very interested in secrecy. That's his defining characteristic, at least to the scientists, other than being sort of brash and, and, and difficult. Um, and he wants this thing to be the most secret project ever in, in essence. And that is sort of his mandate. Roosevelt, when he approves for, the army to take over, he he gives the directive that this be kept in what he calls absolute secrecy. And he had another instance describes this as, you know, much more secrecy than even other wartime projects. He he really wants this kept secret. And so it's it's it it is a real tension for the people working it, especially the scientists. The everyday laborer, even your everyday technician, maybe they don't you know, care. They don't need to know every detail, but you're getting nuclear physicists and chemists and engineers. And you're saying, um, you need to work on this massive project. It's an incredibly large, uh, undertaking. They're, they're creating an entirely new industry from scratch. Um, a, almost one in 100, uh, of all Americans who are are in the civilian labor force in World War II have some role in this. It's about 500,000 people. I mean, it's just a massive thing to try and do. And they're telling the scientists, you're not allowed to know anything more than what we deem necessary for you to know to work on the specific sub-research project that you're working on. And of course, the scientists say, well, I don't even know what I need to know for this, right? Knowledge doesn't doesn't work that way. I might need to know something that some other guy is doing at, at some other laboratory. And the scientists are are being told they're not even allowed to know what the other laboratories are. I mean, it's really, uh, and this is what Groves calls, what it's called at the time, and Groves really likes this, it's called compartmentalization. Sometimes we call it the need to know principle. And Groves didn't invent it. Uh, this is a common counterintelligence principle, but he applied it on a much larger scale than it had ever been applied before to a degree that other uh, army projects were really impressed by, you know, how much secrecy he had where, um, people are just not allowed to cross certain lines. And the only little compromise he does on this is he basically makes, um, Los Alamos, the secret laboratory in New Mexico. This is a sort of oasis in this, you know, empire of secrecy. They're allowed to know what's going on to a much greater degree because you have to, if you're actually assembling bombs, whereas if you're in charge of building nuclear reactors or operating plants to enrich uranium, you might not know what the end product is, but obviously if you're a bomb designer, you do. And, uh, and, and the scientists do push back a bit. Um, they do eventually Groves allows them to have certain types of 
institutions that are like the kinds of institutions they would have in a university. And the colloquia series is one of these, right? This is a place where the scientists can come together and share their research to anybody with the right kind of badge. Um, anybody who's basically cleared to know what they're working on can go to these and learn about what other people are doing and give suggestions and give thoughts. And this is very much against Groves's desires, but the scientists find this necessary to feel like they're actually, um, you know, still scientists and not just sort of machines. Uh, another group that's locked out that uh, really chase against this, and here Groves is facing a, a challenge of a very different magnitude, are uh, the members of Congress. And, and here you're talking about the people that are have enormous power in terms of uh, money, in terms of uh, in terms of funding, and yet they aren't being they're being left out of it. And you're describing how they are repeatedly pushing back against this and, 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 and he's having to mollify them by trying to find having Stimson going and saying, well, you know, trust us, this is very important, but you're going to have to, the key word here being trust us. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I found most surprising when I was doing the research and, and I'm really most proud of putting out there is that, okay, fear of the Germans learning about the bomb. Fine. We all sort of assume that's what a lot of the secrecy is about. And then it turns into fear, you know, wanting to surprise the Japanese. Fine. And then a little bit of like fear of the Soviets and things, other nations. Fine. But it turns out that one of the major fears and in most of the secrecy is motivated by fears. It's, it's, you want secrecy because you, you don't want something to get out because you think something bad would happen if it did. Um, but a lot of the fear during World War II was about Congress finding out about the project. And that's even the case before the military took over. That was the case with Beniever Bush as well. And the reason is that congressmen are indiscreet, for one thing. They were then, they are now. <laughs> they are the biggest source of leaks to the press and things like that, right? They always have been because they're very hard to punish, right? So they can do what they want to do. And it's very hard to punish a congressman for it essentially never happens. Um they get punished for giving out secrets. But more importantly, this is a very strange and unusual project. It's based on very theoretical and abstract knowledge. It's based on technology that has not really been proven in the world. And you're spending a significant fraction of the American war budget. It's about 1% of the cost of the war, which is a lot of money to spend on one project. And at times it's like 50% of the construction of the war is going towards the Manhattan project. And like 50% of the steel is going towards it at times. And this is the kind of thing that your your congressman in the 1940s loves to find waste, the alleged products of waste and 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 things that aren't really doing anything. Um, they love to find uh, uh, boondoggles and expose them and show that they are the great you know slayer of dragons and all that kind of stuff. And this is a project, as Vannevar Bush put it at one point, that he would hate to try to explain to a congressman, right? To to explain, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do this. We're going to make this science fiction weapon <laughs> and it's going to be real and it's going to be the weapon that'll end all weapons and it'll be this amazing trend. And this is going to sound like total nonsense. And so Congress, uh, interestingly, the Germans and the Japanese and the Soviet Union, they can't stop the Manhattan Project. They really just don't have the ability. They could maybe try to sabotage a little bit, but they really cannot stop something this large. Congress could shut it down in a day. They could, you know, pass a law that prohibited any expenditure and and open up hearings and and could really mess it up. And so these several congressmen, the most famous one being, of course, Senator Harry Truman uh, before he became vice president, but there were several others um, really did not understand why they couldn't get more information on this. We're really mad. One of them threatened to expose the whole thing on the open floor in Congress if he wasn't allowed into Oak Ridge. And he was really upset because it seemed to him that they, they let in, you know, Oak Ridge had a, a population it's 50,000 or so. So they, they were letting in pretty much every type of person you could find and you wouldn't let in a congressman, right? I mean, this is the kind of language they're using. And, and it, it took a lot of effort to shut this down. They didn't let any of those people in who asked to be let in. They did eventually decide to let in a few very top ranking members of Congress. And they told them just enough for them to realize this is serious. You should approve our budgets and you should agree with us. If we tell other congressmen to leave it alone, you should also badger them to leave <laughs> it alone. But this was one of the real difficulties um, that is sort of unique to World War II in a way, because the fact that there was a secret 
was the secret. And after World War II, you can say, oh, yeah, it's atomic energy, it's atomic bombs. And, and your congressman will say, oh, oh, got it. I understand. That's important. But before, before they had been used, um, it was actually quite vulnerable to that kind of uh, interference. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. One of the most fascinating aspects of this for me as a student of history was learning that the, how the secrecy has actually shaped our perceptions of what the Manhattan Project was. You describe uh, that the first efforts to write the history of the Manhattan Project were happening concurrently with the project itself and how the focus upon secrecy has contributed to the sense of it as a physics-heavy project and uh, glossing over or, 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 or sliding the contributions made by chemists, engineers, metallurgists, and so forth, who were you know, every bit as indispensable to constructing the bomb project. And it's fascinating to think about how the, the, the long-term consequences of the secrecy, not just in terms of government secrecy, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit, but how we perceive you know the bomb today and, and how it operates are, in effect, a, a, a byproduct of what Groves and, and, and the government did during this period. I mean, we all associate nuclear weapons with theoretical physics, right? We, we associate with Albert Einstein and J. Robert Oppenheimer and these types of people. And to be sure, those, those people are important people. Um, uh, and they were important in this history, but it takes a lot more than theoretical physics to make the bomb. And in fact, the theoretical physics is the most easily declassifiable part of it because the theoretical physics, at least for fission bombs, this was work that was mostly done before the war, um, figuring out how atoms work, figuring out how nuclei work, figuring out the theory of fission, things like that. That was all done by 1939. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, ironically, I mean, maybe it's ironic. I guess it's not ironic, but 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 they, they end up releasing a very theoretical physics heavy version of what they had done in part because one of the main authors of this was himself a theoretical physicist. I guess maybe he was an experimental physicist, but he was a physicist nonetheless. Um, And that's because that was the part that was not secret. The stuff that didn't get included in things like the Smythe report, which is the first, it was the government produced history of the atomic bomb that was released three days after the attack on Nagasaki. The stuff that didn't get included was all the chemistry that you need to, say, make plutonium uh, out of spent fuel from nuclear reactors. The metallurgy, the, these, these, these metals are extremely complicated, uh, very difficult to use. The engineering of actually making bombs and of actually making reactors and enrichment plants and all of this sort of stuff. That's the stuff that was kept completely top secret. But you can open up the Smythe report and within a page or two, you've got E equals MC squared. And this is what everybody thinks atomic bomb. Aha, equals MC squared. When in reality, that has almost nothing to do with the practical realization of nuclear weapons. And it's really just useful for sort of understanding a a very basic version of how they work. And so, yeah, our, our whole history of the bomb is in, is itself been somewhat warped um, by the fact that the only people who really got to speak for the bomb uh, were the physicists because everybody else was uh, too, too, they were under too much secrecy to do so. And that gets to how the dynamic changes once knowledge of the bomb is out, because what you describe with the Manhattan Project is keeping the fact that, you know, that they're developing such a bomb, that such a bomb can exist that's what's being kept secret. Then you get a- after Hiroshima and and then the end of the war, it becomes a very different uh, question, doesn't it? It's more about 
keeping how you did it a secret. And, and here you describe this very fascinating transition period where it, it, it's you, you have a lot of scientists who you know might be thinking that you know we were done, we don't have to you know be so hush hush about this. You also describe though how you have scientists like Oppenheimer who are aware of the need to keep this secret, but who think that there might be a different way of going about it than what was ultimately uh, adopted as the major approach. So the scientists who do sign on with the secrecy during the war, they largely think of it as being short term. They think of it as being expedient for the purposes of avoiding a Nazi nuclear weapon or surprising the Japanese, whichever it will be. They really believe that the secrecy is going to be mostly gotten rid of after the war because they just don't see how it could possibly be maintained. It just seems ridiculous to them that you could try and keep science bottled up uh, when so much of this is is the there are some engineering tricks and things like that, but a lot of what it's all based on are what they would call secrets of nature. And anybody can access secrets of nature. You just need a laboratory and some cleverness and maybe a particle accelerator or two, right? Um, <laughs> there's no point in trying to bottle it up. And they also would say, if you try to bottle it up, you'll kill it. Science can't exist very well in these kind of classified secret worlds. It, it's, it thrives on openness. And so if you want the United States to be ahead of the world militarily, you're going to have to get rid of the secrecy. And so there were a lot of people who were really searching for ways out and were pretty dismayed that um, the secrecy became the sort of dominant way that the politicians and the American public ended up thinking about how you would prevent other nations from getting um, these weapons. And and there were a few, aside from saying secrecy won't work and secrecy is not that effective and, and this isn't going to be, you know, it'll be counterproductive. They did try to put forward an alternative to secrecy, a, a sort of different way to think about how a bomb is made and thus how to stop people from making bombs. And Oppenheimer really championed this quite a lot. Um, he was just sort of doing this as an insider at this point, but this is the idea of international control of atomic energy. So the idea here is that you'd have a treaty in the United Nations and the treaty would basically create an organization that would put limits on what you could do in your country with atomic energy. And it wouldn't restrict research. You can do all the research you want. That's fine. There's no secrecy. There's no anything like that. And in fact, secrecy here would be counterproductive. You want the scientists talking to each other about what they're working on. You want people to be blabbing at conferences, whatever you want. And what you're really looking for are the the industrial processes that are necessary to make bomb fuel. And so you'd be looking at both the uranium itself, there's uranium that goes into the system either to be enriched or to make it be made into fuel for nuclear reactors, the two ways you get the fissile material for the bomb. Um, and you'd be looking for things like nuclear reactors or uranium enrichment facilities, which at the time are massive. Um, I mean, one of those facilities at during the Manhattan Project was the largest factory under one roof in the entire world at the time it's built. So it's not an easy thing to hide. And the idea would be that by focusing on material things and not on information, one, you'd free science, hooray, that's what they want. Um, but two, it would actually be effective because it's very hard to control ideas moving around. But if you get everybody to agree to not build the biggest factories that exist in the world at the time. And then you have ways of letting people inspect countries and go to where rumored factories are being built or whatever. You might have a, a chance at actually uh, keeping these things from being built or to put it uh, another way of other countries being content that these things aren't being built. And so this was put forward as an um, American policy plan. And again, Oppenheimer's fingers are all over this and he was involved in it. And it had a really anti- secrecy spin and at least the the drafts that that didn't get into getting in the final version they, they sort of edited that down a bit which is interesting um but uh and it, but it didn't go anywhere and the reasons were one the united states didn't push it quite as much as it could have i i'm not sure that the truman administration was uh, 100% on board with this line of reasoning and and they weren't totally convinced by it and and secrecy is an easy thing to sort of go to by comparison. Um, and, and the other 
reason is that the Russians were not that interested in it. We now know they were building their own atomic bomb at this time, and it would have taken quite a lot for them to trust that the United States was sort of not going to secretly maintain atomic bombs or keep it vulnerable or something like this. So it didn't work. Um, though it is not so different from the way we deal with nonproliferation today, which is not really about secrecy per se, um, as much as it is about monitoring the kinds of facilities that can make weapons fuel. So in lieu of Oppenheimer's, shall we say, optimistic uh, approach to this, what uh, is implemented instead? And how is it in some ways, in, in, in these various ways, different from what you saw during the war. So you have this decade, half a decade of attempts to sort of figure this stuff out. This is, um, by this point, it's the, the, the organization that's in charge of all this is the Atomic Energy Commission. They were created by law in, uh, they took power in 1947. And their job is to sort of make atomic bombs and uh, regulate knowledge about them. And the first chairman of this organization is a guy named David Lilienthal, fascinating character. I spent a lot of time on him in the book. He's a Roosevelt New Dealer. He's a technocrat. He had run the Tennessee Valley Authority. He's a genuine sort of liberal reformer technocrat type. He wants to he doesn't really believe in secrecy when he comes into the office. He does not want it to be cloak and dagger. He doesn't want to just live in fear. He wants to have the peaceful aspects of the atom sort of get out there. Um, but the law mandates that he also control everything else, that that secrecy is really important for many aspects of it. And so he has to wend this really complicated path that ultimately doesn't really work. He's constantly trying to reform the system and find a way to be more open, but he's constantly stymied by the military, by the Truman administration, by scandals that occur under his watch, by Congress, who sort of enjoys picking on him all the time. Um, and he ends up sort of being almost the opposite of what he intended to be. He, he becomes you know, more secretive than a lot of other groups. Um, what finally is the sort of nail in the coffin of all these reform efforts and this attempt to really think it through in a novel way is the uh, the detonation of the first Soviet bomb in 1949, which is followed up very quickly by the debate for whether you should build a hydrogen bomb, which leaks out very quickly. And then uh, finally, after Truman sort of resolves the hydrogen bomb debate by saying, we're going to keep working on, on bombs, including the hydrogen bomb, literally like the day after that, they discovered that there had been spies throughout the Manhattan Project for the Soviet Union. And the combination of these three shocks, as I call them, it just, it just kills any effort and any will to reform. And what gets built up in the sort of wake of this end of reform. And also Lilienthal resigns, um, not for those reasons, but because he was tired of being beat up by Congress all the time. Uh, but uh, the, what comes out in the wake of that is what I call the sort of Cold War way of thinking about it. This takes some years to evolve, but it's a combination model of believing that there are secrets to be kept and they are so important that the fate of the entire country rests on them. So if you give them away, you can literally be executed like the Rosenbergs, right? That's the highest fear of it. At the same time, Eisenhower is not very happy with the amount of sort of how, how depressing the whole thing is. And so he really believes that if you brought in sort of business and industry that you could uh you could you could redeem this awful situation by having private nuclear power. So you get this push for atoms for peace, for nuclear power, for fusion. You know all of these sort of n safe atoms, um, and so I call this the period of the dangerous atoms. Uh, excuse me, the, the 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 peaceful atoms and the dangerous scientists. And it's it's a really complicated period because it, it, there isn't any room in there for a lot of nuance. I mean, either a bit of information is so dangerous that giving it away will destroy the whole country, or it's so innocuous that literally everybody should know about it, that it needs to be broadcast from every organ and given to every country because it's going to be our savior someday. And of course, the reality is that the technology isn't isn't necessarily one or both of these things. It's There's a lot of dual use. There's a lot of stuff that's in between. A nuclear reactor can be made for 
generating electricity, but it can also be used to make plutonium for bombs. You can do these things uh, both ways. And uh, but this is the sort of I call it the sort of bipolar model where it's it's just all these extremes, and that's what really comes to define the Cold War for me in terms of secrecy. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how that came across so well in the book, how on the one hand, in the early 1950s, it's like they can't even breathe the words hydrogen bomb as, as though somehow it'll give the game away and the Cold War will be over. And then you have you know the Eisenhower administration with the Adams for Peace program dispensing a lot of technology that uh, – you know, effectively undermines a lot of what they're trying to achieve, what a lot of people, the proponents for secrecy are trying to achieve. And, and that tension, I, I thought it was especially fascinating how it played out when it came to something like fusion research, not not fusion for the hydrogen bomb, but the development of, 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 of a peaceful fusion power project, which, you know, was this idealistic goal they were going to achieve in five years. And I think that's still the current timeline that about five years will happen. <laughs> so, but it, how it was, how there, there was this, on this the, the tension that existed between these people that were promoting the, the notion of fusion research and the need for it. And at the same time, uh, it, as soon as somebody got within, you know, your breathing distance of it, you would start to see, uh, you know, government security rearing up and saying, Oh no, no, we can't have that. And how some scientists had to get very clever to navigate around that in order to try to pursue the, the prospect of fusion technology. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I look at, I like fusion. So there's two types of fusion in the book and, and I'll just talk about the first one now, but, but magnetic confinement fusion, this is what most people associate with like fusion plants. Right. And it's one of these places where the U S sort of invents thinking around these lines. They start working on it early on, but it's one of those concepts that's, it's, it's not that unobvious to people who are not in the United States either, that, that <laughs> if you can heat things up quite a bit, if you can make an H bomb, which by 1952, the United States has done and exploded in the Pacific ocean, wouldn't it be nice if you could make a reactor that basically ran on seawater or something like that? Um, and, and just pulled the hydrogen out of that. And it's not as simple as that, of course, but this is sort of the goal. It'd be, there'd be no nuclear waste. You'd have um, a lot of energy uh, that you could use for whatever, and um, there wouldn't be that much even risk of any kind of proliferation or diversion of it. But it was still classified in the United States um, through most of the 1950s um, to the growing frustration of scientists within the system, um, especially when like the Russians started publishing on it and giving talks on it. And then you have these American scientists saying, Hey, we'd like to give talks on this too. And the Atomic Energy Commission saying, well, we're not sure, you know, and the scientists are saying, well, this has nothing to do with H-bombs. It's just not the same kind of reactions. And they're saying, well, but it is a strong neutron source. And if you had a really strong neutron source, you could make plutonium if you had a bunch of uranium lying around. And the scientists are saying, this is really absurd. This is not, this is not how anybody's going to try to make any, you know, plutonium. <laughs> we can't even make the fusion work, much less have enough neutrons to, to be breeding plutonium. Um, and eventually, not so much because the scientists are so convincing, but because they're afraid that the U.S. is going to be Sputniked again. So this is in 1958. So in 57, the Soviets put the first satellite into space. And it's this great shameful thing for the United States to be second in the space race, right? And so the fear is, well, what if the Soviets have a big breakthrough in nuclear fusion? Or what if they're just perceived to? What if every time they put out the Soviets and the British, they put out press releases about how great their fusion research is? And in America, we've actually been doing it for years longer and have much better stuff to show. But we keep it secret. Everybody's going to think that we're behind. Our allies are going to think that we're not the best. So I guess we better open it up. And so they basically open up the entire field of magnetic confinement fusion out of a fear, in this case, out of a fear of being, of looking inadequate, especially in front of our allies. And this is a period in which the U.S. is extremely concerned that our allies believe that we are the biggest and the toughest and the best so that they don't for a minute have a contemplation of, uh, potentially negotiating with the Soviets or anything like that. One of the things I enjoyed most about your book was how you don't treat nuclear secrets in a vacuum, that you talk about within the context of broader attitudes towards secrecy in America during this period. And this comes across uh, most clearly when you get to the 1970s. And you have with Watergate a, a national, you know, uh, awakening, shall we say, about about secrecy? Uh, 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 it's uh, kind of a shock as to 
what secrecy has become. And while a lot of the, you, you note that a lot of the process of declassification actually predates Watergate, how you see a different approach towards secrecy. Secrecy is now something to be dismantled. Secrecy is now something to be challenged rather than to be accepted uh, autom- automatically as being the, the best thing possible. All of a sudden, knowledge is, is, is not something to be feared so much. And, and you describe how this begins to, leads to this very fascinating series of attacks on nuclear secrecy that have some very interesting consequences. Yeah, so in the 1970s, and, and there's antecedents in the 60s and even in the 50s a little bit, but by the 1970s, you get what I, I call sort of anti-secrecy. And this is, you can think of it as a political ideology. You want to be really academic, you could call it the rhetoric of anti-secrecy. My publisher didn't let me use the word rhetoric, so but th- that's what I would prefer to call it, where <laughs> it's 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 a set of beliefs in essence, which essentially is that secrecy is the ill and that secrecy is the cause of the arms race and proliferation and things like that. And that secrecy is, um, is the, is, is the real disease here that everything else is sort of flowing from. And so these are people who are very opposed ideologically, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but it is ideological, um, to any and all forms of secrecy that they see. And this comes out, especially the Pentagon Papers, Watergate, all of this stuff of the 70s, which exposes uh, the the ways in which secrecy has been used to hide abuses and incompetence and embarrassments and things like this. And this, this is a broader generalized uh, approach. This is a part of reaction to the Vietnam War, right? This is this is a a, a, a a great decrease in faith in government and in the sort of paternalistic role, in particular, of government of of a sort of Papa knows best uh, approach to democracy, uh, and it eventually makes its way in various forms into the discussions about nuclear secrets as well, because the bomb is sort of the underpinning it's it's always the 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 sort of final say in national security questions and secrecy questions for the government it's always well if you didn't have this then we'd get nuked or well we can't have total open you know transparency because of nuclear weapons obviously right it becomes the sort of way that it's the infinite threat and so it becomes the infinite way of emphasizing how scary the world is and why you need secrecy and things like that so there there come to be several activists um for often different reasons some of them are really anti-secrecy some of them are really uh, uh taking a different tune they they want to for example emphasize that secrets wouldn't keep uh, a terrorist from getting a bomb, for example, that I- instead what would keep a terrorist from getting a bomb is not letting you with the fuel. This is also the beginning of fears of international terrorism at the Munich um, Olympics. Um, but there become some who who start to really see uh, secrecy as the problem and nuclear secrecy as the problem. And the most interesting of these is a guy, and he's still around, named Howard Moreland. And um, he decides, and I just think this is such an interesting thing. He's anti-war and he's anti-nuclear weapons. And he's reading a book written by somebody who worked on the H-bomb. And it's about Robert Oppenheimer and the security problems he had during the war and things like that. And in the introduction of the book, the book says essentially um, that the that the only true secret that is still around from this period is exactly how the H-bomb they invented in the 1950s works. Um, and Moreland sees that and thinks, aha, I'm going to figure out how the H-bomb worked. And if I can figure out how the H-bomb works and publish it, then people will see that secrecy is all nonsense. If a guy like me, who, who is not a nuclear physicist or anything like that, um, if a guy like me can figure out how an H-bomb works at, just by talking to people and reading books and things like that, uh, then anybody can do it. And that proves that secrecy is bad and wrong. And that will, in its way, bring down the whole regime. And and I will just point out that he tried to tell many other activists about this plan. And most of them said, what are you talking about? How would, A, how does telling people how to make H-bombs help get rid of nuclear weapons as opposed to encourage them? And B, uh, there's a big gap between... <laughs> 
show them how to make H-bombs and the whole nuclear regime falls apart. Like, how, how exactly is that going to happen? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Howard is und- undaunted and he goes on this sort of quest to figure out how H-bombs are made and he's remarkably successful. So he, uh, I, I love the way that he goes about it too, because it, it, it's, 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 he, it's like he sub- he takes the secrecy regime and he, you, he subverts it to prove it. I, I thought it was sheer genius to basically say, well, let's send the article. And if they say we can't publish it, then we know we're onto something. <laughs> yeah. So what, what Howard does is he spends a lot of time figuring out how it's, how he thinks the H bomb works. And the, the book goes into detail about how he does this and it's somewhat improbable. I mean, he does things like read children's encyclopedias, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as your first place to go to, but he figures that many of them are, are written by experts and there must be some amount of truth in what they say in there. Um, and he comes up with a model of an H-bomb that's, that's actually fairly plausible. And he goes to a magazine, the Progressive Magazine, which as you can tell from the name is pretty left-leaning. And he, he basically tries to sell them on on publishing this article of how H bombs are made and they're initially a little dubious and they decide to go with it. And their strategy ends up being that the progressive sends a copy to the, the department of energy and basically says, um, who, who's taken over from the AEC and, and basically says, well, we are planning on publishing this. What are you going to do about it? And usually the government by this point, would not respond to this kind of thing because they they have what is internally a policy they've had since the forties. That is the no comment policy, which is they will, they will not comment on any private speculation about nuclear weapons, designs or secrets. Because if you say, if somebody comes to you and says, here's how an H bomb works and you say, go ahead and publish that. I don't care. That probably implies that it's wrong. (laughs) But if you instead say, (laughs) don't publish that, that's secret, that implies that it's right. And either way, the government is giving away information. And so rather they would just say, we don't have anything to say about that. If you're going to publish it, publish it. And you know, the world is full of speculative ideas. How is anybody going to know if you're right or wrong? doesn't matter. Right. Um, what they do in this case, though, is they get sort of tricked into trying to censor it. Basically, the progressive makes it clear that they're going to publish it and that they, they give a sort of artificial deadline to the government. They don't really give them a lot of time to deliberate about it or find out what these people are about. And the government ends up saying, fine, you're going to try to publish this thing that we think is you shouldn't publish. And we're going to file we, under the Atomic Energy Act. We can uh, censor this. This this is um part of the concept of nuclear secrets in the United States, the legal definition of restrict of, of nuclear secrecy is called restricted data title of the book. Um, and it's a special form of secrecy that only applies to nuclear weapons. And one of its, um, defining characteristics is it, it says that they are nuclear weapon secrets are secrets by definition because they are about nuclear weapons. They are secret. It isn't because someone in some office stamped it and said, I made the secret or that it's generated by government contracts. It's sort of like inherently a secret by the basis of its definition, no matter who makes it. So under this definition, even though Moreland didn't like rob any government offices or anything like that, or, or get access to classified information. The mere fact that he was having thoughts about hydrogen bombs meant that they were secret. <laughs> and this is a, you know, a, a sort of a constitutionally vexing <laughs> proposition. And the book explains why they set this up in the forties. It's not very logical, but, um, basically the government says, this contains restricted data and we will enjoin you from publication. And this is one of the only cases of prior restraint in the United States where government went to a publication and said, you may not publish this under penalty of, you know, lots of bad things happening to you. And there was a trial and uh, initially, um, and this gets portrayed by the people who get censored as like, Ooh, bad government censoring me, but they had actually tried to engineer this because look, if you publish a magazine that says, I found a secret, okay, maybe a few people will be interested, but again, how do they know you're right? But if the government tries to censor you for publishing a secret, now people are thinking that you must have something to say. Right. And so, uh, there's a initial trial in which 
this uh, prior restraint injunction is granted, but then there's an appeal. And then during the appeal, the government's case just totally falls apart. It, it, it becomes very clear that this guy figured this out the way the, 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 his defense essentially put it. And Howard Moreland was not thrilled with this was that he was like plagiarizing children's encyclopedias and, uh, <laughs> and that he's you know doing that. This isn't really top secret information that it's been out for a long time. If you've thought to look for it and that by trying to apply the full force of the law to this, the government is, is essentially, um, uh, sort of being arbitrary and really infringing on his first amendment rights. And so uh, eventually the government contrives to declare the entire thing mooted before they, the, they get a bad ruling and they get out of there. Uh, and, and, and his version of the H bond, if you go in the Google image search and you write in Teller Ulam design, that's the name of the H bond design. You will see variations on what he put out in 1979, Howard Moreland. So he totally succeeded in, in creating the dominant vision of how H bombs work. Uh, though it didn't, it turns out tear down the whole secrecy system. It, it also, though, uh, and this is something that, that, that struck me as I was reading, was how modern it was, because a lot of what you described there really does seem to presage how we deal with secrecy. And this is where I, th- I thought your, your book was so relevant beyond just talking about nuclear secrets, how so much of the discourse about secrecy, what the government's holding, the government's sense that this is something that they're, they're doing out of you know, to protect the American people versus the sense that you have from a lot of people that that the government's using secrets to cover things up and that we, we must go out there, you know, sort of the, the, the X files th- thinking, if you will, of the truth is out there and we have to ferret it out. How, how so much of that, you know, is, is down to the present day. And you still see it with, with, as you explain in your final chapter with, you know, the attitude towards nuclear secrets, although now it's reformulated, we're no longer keeping it from the Soviets because they no longer exist. Now it's, as you put it, international terrorists or, uh, you know, or, or Iran or something like that. Yeah, these themes don't go away. And in the end, some aspects um, uh, lessen a little bit. There are a bunch of declassifications after the end of the Cold War. There are attempts to reform the system again that, again, fail for various political reasons that the book goes into. Um, But we still essentially have a system like this, though there's more stuff declassified now than there was in the past. So it's harder to sort of innocuously stray across nuclear secrets though. Um, we still have all sorts of things when it comes to deployments of weapons and, uh, strategies and things like that, that are, are still under wraps. Um, and I, I ultimately conclude in the book that we're, we're probably going to always, we're going to have it as long as, um, as long as we still have these weapons and as long as we're still a coherent state, um, these sorts of things will probably exist. And, and there really aren't that many good examples of states that deconstruct their secrecy regimes um, that don't end up deconstructing themselves in the process, like you know East Germany or Saddam's Iraq or something like that. Um, so uh, the book, there's a part of me that you know wants to write a book that ends on the and this is what we do next, people. You know, but it's not a manifesto and it, it's not prophetic either. But it's sort of saying, look, we still live in this world and we're going to still live in this world for a long time. And I do have some you know tips for if you are do think secrecy is a problem? Like how should you go about trying to enact reforms? What are the hazards? These kinds of things. I I do think history gives some uh, indication to, uh, but one of the major ones is that anti-secrecy by itself is not, it's not quite large enough to do the trick. Suspicion of secrecy will get you so far, but fear of other things caused by information getting out is much higher. People are much, even people who are reformers, even people like David Lilienthal, right? Once they get into a position of power and they start really taking seriously the responsibility of the sort of threat landscape, it's very hard for them to uh, not think, well, we can keep secrecy, some more secrecy for now, because who knows if it's really a big of a deal, but we can always make that decision in the future. Whereas once you let a secret out, it's, it's out there. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about for the last couple of years, and I'd like to keep working on it, um, is the origins of 
uh, presidential nuclear uh, use authority in the United States. So in the United States, nuclear uh, weapons use can be authorized by exactly one person, and that's the president of the United States. And this was um, of a lot of concern to people um, during the last presidency, uh, but it's an issue that also we continue to live with and will continue until we come up with some alternative arrangement to have. There's a lot of downsides to it from a policy standpoint, but I'm very interested in the very early history of it and many other sort of um, atomic attitudes, you might say, that have gotten baked into our current world to a degree that we sort of take them for granted. So um, basically, I, I'm really interested in working on a, a history of the uh, of, of nuclear weapons policies and um, choices under the Truman administration in particular, because so many of these, we, we tend to think about Harry Truman and the atomic bomb as, as, a, as a story that sort of ends with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I really think that's where you should start thinking about Harry Truman, and the atomic bomb, because he ends up setting up so many of these policies, including this presidential use policy that we still have today and are still quite controversial today. Well, that does sound like a very fascinating book, and I hope that uh, when you finish it, you can uh, come back on uh, the New Books Network podcast to talk about it. Oh, you bet. I, I wouldn't miss it. Alex Wallerstein, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, Mark. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.